Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you were doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see this kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, Jesus said, and do you not understand these things? I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptised. Now, John also was baptising at Anon near Salim because there was plenty of water and people were constantly coming to be baptised. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, well, he is baptising and everyone is going to him. To this, John replied, a man can receive only what is given him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said I am not the Christ, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater, I must become less. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. 
The man who has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the spirit without limit. The father loves the son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. Thanks, Christine. Well, good day, everyone. I'm Dave. It's great to be with you here this morning. Recently, my wife Maddie and I, we've been getting back into the Lord of the Rings trilogy. That's so good. I love it. Um, in the final film, there's this character called Shelob. Uh, she's a particularly nasty big spider that lives in a cave. She's nasty because what she loves to do is she loves to paralyze people and other things, and then later eat their flesh alive. She's horrible. Mad can't watch those bits, but you know I bravely keep my eyes open. The main character, Frodo, he finds himself uh, in Shelob's cave. And while Frodo is stumbling around in the dark, trying to figure out where he is, she sneaks up behind him. And as she begins to pounce on Frodo, he pulls out this light. And he stops her and she tracks. She recoils. She seems unable uh, to pounce on Shelob while this light's being held in front of her. This light was precious to Frodo. In that struggle with Shelob, this was the only thing keeping him alive. And when he finally escapes the cave, you can see that he's doing everything he can just to stay in the light. But today, we get to listen to two conversations, one between Nicodemus, or Nico, and Jesus, and then another between John the Baptist and his disciples. But right in the middle of these two conversations, uh, we hear these words from John the author. He says, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world. But people love darkness instead of light because their, their deeds were evil. Seems pretty harsh to me, this idea of uh, people loving the darkness It's almost like he's comparing us uh, to a creature like Shelob. Has John gone too far in this assessment? It's an uncomfortable thought, and it's something that we're going to wrestle with as we look at these uh, different stories today. On that note, let's uh, join in on our first conversation. We're in the middle of the Passover festival. Uh, It's a week-long Jewish festival. And at this festival, Jesus has performed a number of amazing miracles and he's captured the people's attention. One of those people is Nicodemus. And so in the dark of night, Nicodemus decides he's going to pay Jesus a visit. In verse 1, we learn two things about Nicodemus. The first is that he's a Pharisee and the second is that he's a part of what's called the Jewish ruling council. Uh, which is another name for the Sanhedrin. So as a Pharisee, uh, he's trying to prepare the Jews for the coming of God's kingdom. And he's doing this by encouraging a strict upkeep of the law, of the Old Testament laws. Now, we tend to have a bit of a, a negative view of these Pharisees, and probably for good reason. But at this point in time, they're actually um, pretty respected 
and loved by the people. You know, the people's choice, if you will. But Nicodemus, he's also a member of the Sanhedrin. This is the highest uh, governing body within the Jewish system. It's kind of like uh, he's also a judge of the Australian High Court. So what we're seeing is that Nicodemus, he's respected, loved, and he's powerful. And now, in the dark of night, he's coming to Jesus. It's not entirely clear why he chose the night. It could just be that Jesus was really busy doing miracles during the festival, and so Nicodemus couldn't get a hold of him. Or possibly, uh, Nicodemus, he doesn't want to yet be associated with Jesus. But what is clear is that Nicodemus is going out of his way because he's got things that he wants to talk to Jesus about. And so in verse 2, he says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you're doing if God were not with him. Here we see Nicodemus showing an openness to Jesus uh, that we don't see with a lot of the Pharisees. He identifies Jesus as a rabbi and also as a teacher sent from God. I feel like Nicodemus is off to a good start, but notice Jesus' response in verse 3. Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. And this brings us to our first point. Members of God's kingdom need to be reborn. Does Jesus' response feel a bit like a jump to you? And Nicodemus has just come and said that Jesus is clearly an important person. And Jesus says, to see the kingdom of you must be born again? What's going on here? In typical fashion, uh, Jesus is going beyond the words being spoken and is locking in on a critical issue. You see, in visiting Jesus, Nicodemus, he's sussing out uh, whether Jesus is compatible with the Pharisees' views and so someone he can endorse. But Jesus here is saying, there's something more important that you need to know. To be in God's kingdom, you need to be reborn. Now, at this point, Nicodemus, he thinks he's talking about physical rebirth, and so he's understandably confused. So he seeks clarification. How can someone be born when they're old? Surely they cannot enter a second time into the mother's womb. And so Jesus explains, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and the Spirit. We'll come back to this idea of water and Spirit in just a moment. And so then Jesus mildly rebukes Nicodemus. He says, You should not be surprised am I saying you must be born again. But Nicodemus clearly is still surprised because he says again in verse 9, How can this be? At which point, uh, Jesus gives him a stronger rebuke. He says, You're a teacher of Israel, and you don't understand these things? You almost feel a little bit sorry for Nicodemus at this point. He's an important guy, loved by people. 
And he's gone out of his way to visit Jesus. And he probably thinks he's being respectful as well. And yet Jesus here is schooling him on this idea of being born again. Is Jesus being fair? Should, should we have known, should Nicodemus have known about this rebirth idea? Well, it's here that the idea of water and the Spirit is particularly important. A number of times in the Old Testament, uh, we see these two images being brought together. And in essence, uh, the water here is representing life and the Spirit as the thing that enables this new life to occur. For instance, uh, in Ezekiel chapter 36, uh, we hear these prophetic words. I'll sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I'll cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I'll remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. As a Pharisee, a Nicodemus, he's well-versed in the Old Testament. He had to be to be able to teach people. But like so many of the Pharisees at the time, he assumed wrongly that he was already a part of God's kingdom. And so he focused his time and his energy uh, in self-improvement, in making himself better. And yet, he's completely missed what the Old Testament made clear. To be ready for God's kingdom, you don't need self-renovation. You need a complete rejuvenation. You need a heart of flesh. As we heard from John earlier, the verdict is clear. People love darkness. But John isn't just talking about people in Nicodemus' time. He's talking about all of humanity. I don't really like this idea of loving darkness, you know, of being uh, less like Frodo in The Lord of the Rings and more like Shelob. And yet, I think as we look around the world, we can't help but get uh, hints that this could be the case. For instance, we know it's important to care for people. And yet, time and time again, uh, we see people bringing others down so they can serve their own purposes. You see it in politics, they're an easy target. Our elected leaders, they try to destroy the other parties uh, to you know, win their arguments and win favour with the people. Pornography is another example. People will generally agree uh, it's an industry that's built on demeaning men and women and that it's damaging to everybody who's involved. And yet, it seems more common than ever before. If we spend long enough looking around us at the world, we can't help but get a sense that maybe humanity is drawn towards darkness. But what if we took the time uh, to actually look at ourselves? If we observed our actions, our thoughts, our hearts, would we get any hints that we love darkness? If John's verdict is true, 
and we're lovers of darkness, then no amount of self-improvement can prepare us for God's coming kingdom. But all's not lost. Uh, There is a way to be reborn. And surprisingly, we see it through a lifted snake. And this brings us to our second point. Members of God's kingdom trust in the lifted son of man. We're rejoining the conversation again. Uh, Jesus has just finished rebuking Nicodemus when he says in verse 14, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Jesus here, he's referring to an account uh, in Numbers. Um, It's an intriguing account uh, where God sends out these poisonous snakes on the Israelites as a way of punishing them for their rebellion. But in his mercy, uh, he tells Moses to lift up this, uh, this bronze snake and all the Israelites who viewed this snake, they wouldn't die. But Jesus here is saying, in the same way that the snake was lifted up, Jesus needs to be lifted up. And in Jesus' final words in the account, we're told why. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness... So the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in Him. Now these words, if you're a believer, they sound amazing, the most beautiful words in the world. But I think if you're not yet sure about Jesus, uh, it can actually get you offside pretty quickly. Um, And God can start to seem like some sort of intolerant gatekeeper. And he's just looking for any way to keep you out of the kingdom. And Jesus, he just seems like the best way of doing it. But this view, it assumes that people have some inherent right to be in God's kingdom. And that's not what we're being told here. Uh, In verse 18, John says, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Notice here, those who don't trust in Jesus, they stand condemned already. Humanity does have an inherent right, but it's not to enter into God's kingdom. It's actually separation from God. This idea is echoed again in our verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son of Man has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. What we're seeing here is the natural consequence for our rebellion against God, uh, for being lovers of darkness. But God didn't send Jesus in the world uh, to condemn people, In the famous words in verse 16, we actually see the heart of God's motivation for this plan. For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only Son. God allowed his precious Son uh, to suffer. He he sent him into this, from the kingdom of light, uh, into a world of darkness. 
He allowed his hands to be pierced with rusty nails while his body was lifted up on a cross. And for Jesus' body to hang there uh, while he took the condemnation we deserved for our deeds. But what's more, this son of man, he rose from the grave. And so he demonstrated his power over death and darkness. Jesus is the lifted snake. And for all who put their faith in him, they can enter God's eternal kingdom of light. As here we see, God, he's not an intolerant gatekeeper. He's a loving and sacrificial father. And in Jesus, he's calling people to come and join him in the kingdom of light. For Nicodemus, uh, we don't know if he ended up putting his trust in Jesus. Later on in John, uh, we see a couple of accounts which show that he still respected Jesus and thought he was an impressive guy. But we don't know if he tasted new life. It's this frustrating tension in John's account. But it could be at this moment that you're experiencing a similar tension as you weigh up these things that we're talking about. If that's you, maybe today is the day that you want to cut that tension to trust in the lifted Jesus. Or if you have decided that you want to take this step, uh, this is the most exciting news. And I just want to encourage you to share it with somebody here today. Uh, both so they can just celebrate with you uh, that you're now part of God's family, but also so they can support you in these next steps. But if you're not at this stage, uh, that's fine. We'd love you to keep joining us at Modbury, uh, particularly in John, but basically always we're exploring Jesus, who he is, uh, and what he's done for us. But for people who here today are already believers, uh, we're going to jump to our next story, and I think this one is particularly speaking to us. So after Jesus encountered with Nicodemus, he and his disciples, they head out to the Judean countryside where they're baptising people. Uh, they were particularly uh, near the Jordan River. Baptism in this context... Uh, it's just a symbolic way that people are repenting uh, and turning back to God. But then jumping over onto the other side of the Jordan River uh, and looking on are John the Baptist and his disciples. Now, up until this point, John the Baptist, uh, baptizing was kind of his thing. And he'd been building a pretty good following as well in the process. For instance, at the start of Mark's Gospel, we hear that when John was baptising, the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins, they were baptised by him in the Jordan River. And now John and his disciples, they find themselves again near the Jordan River, but suddenly the flocks have left them and they've gone to join Jesus. His disciples, they're clearly a little bit agitated or unsettled by this. And so they come to John. And we hear that um, in verse 26. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, 
That man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about. Look, he's baptizing and everyone's going to him. Now, this statement is loaded uh, with implicit questions like, what's going on, John? Baptism, that's our thing. Now this Jesus, he's taking it. We're losing numbers, John. Are you okay with this? But John's response, it's striking. And this brings us to our final point. Members of God's kingdom make less of themselves and more of Jesus. John picks up on his disciples' uncertainty here. And so he replies, A person can receive only what's given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I'm not the Messiah, but I'm sent ahead of him. Here John's reminding his disciples of the purpose that God had given him. And the purpose was always to prepare people for Jesus the Messiah. This wasn't uh, fresh news to the disciples. Uh, Back in chapter 1, they would have heard John saying, that the reason he came baptizing was so that Jesus could be revealed. In other words, the key purpose of this ministry was always to prepare and point people to Jesus. To capture this idea, John then tells a wedding metaphor. And in this metaphor, uh, Jesus is the bridegroom, his followers are the church, and John, he's kind of the equivalent of the best man. From verse 29, he says, The bride belongs to the bridegroom, that's Jesus. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. A number of years ago, I was co-best man at one of my friends Sam's weddings. Uh, Many of you would know Sam's parents, Barb and Clint. Yeah, that's me, fresh-faced on the right there. (laughs) Looking good, Dave. Um, (laughs) Being involved in the bridal party, it was such a privilege. And it was a lot of fun. Uh, Apart from all the photos on the day, my cheeks were so sore by the end. But most of it was great. But by far, uh, the most, one of the most special things of the day was being able to stand alongside him and hear him make a lifetime commitment to the person he loved. It was such a privilege. We hear John saying, as Jesus' best man in a sense, his privilege as to step to one side and see Jesus the Messiah in all his glory. And to conclude this idea, as John says in verse 30, he must be greater and I must become less. Now, in one sense, John, he could have felt pretty threatened by Jesus. After all, uh, the rise of John, uh, the rise of Jesus, is probably going to result in the demise of John in one sense. And his disciples were clearly feeling this tension. And yet, when he looks across at the Jordan 
and he sees people following Jesus, he joyfully declares, he must be greater and I must be less. As those saved by the lifted Jesus, our role and our joy is to see Jesus in his rightful place with people following and worshipping him. It may sound obvious, uh, and yet it can be so easy for us to miss the mark. At Sam's wedding, I got to deliver a speech at the reception. And I was looking it up, you know, it went something like this. I've known Sam for a number of years now. And over this time, I've done some pretty impressive things. I've always been able to make Sam laugh with my clever wit. And if ever he's needed advice, I've always been able to share a wise word with him. I'm glad a couple of people are laughing here. In case you're not sure, I'm joking at this point. That was the first draft before Maddie made some amendments. <laughs> but I don't know if you have, but I've heard a number of best man speeches that are like this. Uh, they draw attention away from the bride and groom uh, and draw it towards themselves. And when you hear it, you're just waiting for the pain to be over. As followers of Jesus, we generally get uh, that Jesus is at the centre of his kingdom and he needs to be made great. It's only right. And yet sometimes I wonder uh, if we, we can approach the Christian life a little bit like that speech and when we have opportunities in the day um, to point people to Jesus' greatness, uh, somehow we end up drawing attention to ourselves. In the coming week, what would it look like for Jesus to be greater and for us to be less? Uh, who was here at the one-to-one workshop yesterday? You can just chuck up your hands. Uh, there was a few. It was such a great time. Um, basically what it was is uh, an event to try and equip Christians uh, to read the Bible with people investigating. The main speaker was a guy named Richard. And he phrased this idea slightly differently. He said, we need to be fools for Jesus. Richard's actually a great example of being a fool for Jesus. He's a high-powered businessman based in London. And yet, he's willing to give up his time and his energy uh, to ask people a simple question. Do you want to read the Bible with me? And apparently, people actually do say yes. Uh, globally, he said the stat is, if you ask people the Bible, if they want to read the Bible, one in five will say yes. Now, this is just one example. Um, I'm sure you can think of many others in your own life. So let's consider this together then. When we leave church today, and when we go out to lunch, what would it look like for us to be fools for Jesus? As we start the week, our work, our university, our caring for our family, what would it look like for us to be fools for Jesus? After a busy day when we return home, maybe to our housemates or our kids or our spouse, what would it look like there for us to be fools for Jesus? We've got a great 
Lord and Saviour, the lifted snake. Through him, we can be born again and join God's kingdom of light. And as followers of Jesus, we've got the privilege of saying, he must be greater and we must be less. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you that you are a loving and kind God. That although we've rebelled against your will, you reveal your love to us in Jesus. Please help us to place our trust in the lifted Son of Man. We know that Jesus is worthy of all our praise. And so we ask that in the week to come, you give us the desire and the will to be fools for Jesus, making more of him and less of us. We pray this in your name and for your glory. Amen.